as servants of Christ, I've chosen this because I think it's good for us to know the interaction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of that day, and Jesus Christ. And maybe in some way we'll identify today how that we could we could either be in Jesus' place or we could be in the Pharisees and the people who challenged Jesus Christ. You need to try to identify yourself if you if you take what position if you're with Jesus or if you sort of have a problem and you're sort of with them. If you do, then you're wavering between belief and unbelief. Uh, this uh, eighth chapter, Jesus went unto the uh, through the eleventh verse. He went in unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees, these are the religious people, these are the front seaters. These are the ones who ran the assembly at that time. They were the ones who said people could come in and worship, or they couldn't come in and worship. They, they, they brought unto him a woman taken in the adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. They're putting Jesus to the test. They want to see if he's sound. They want to see if he agrees with them. They know he doesn't agree with them. They're trying to expose him. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what say the style? Or what do you say about it? We want to know what you say about this. They're putting him on the spot. This they said, tempting him, trying him, testing him out, trying to expose him, that they might have to accuse him. This was a, a, a wicked crowd, and yet they were posing under the disguise of being religious and of being uh, promoters of what God would have. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, See, they just continued. They wouldn't let him go. They were hounding him. They, had, they thought they had him in trial. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast his stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience. Now when you ask a man, you're trying to, you're trying to put me to the test if I agree with this or this or what. And yet I, I'm saying if you want to do what you want to do, you've got to be free from sin. And they admitted they couldn't. Look at the ninth verse. They, their own conscience convicted them. They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? And there's nothing derogatory about woman 
we might use it in that sense today, but we need to think about using the word laden, which is distinguished and probably dignified and a proper address. So he is not uh, saying a derogatory title to her, but rather complimentary. Lady, where is your accuser? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord, and she gave him the benefit of being in control by calling him that. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now, let's look at your outline and your page. Jesus, I want you to think about this, because this is a lesson you ought to put in your Bible and keep, because you can read it over and get a lot out of it. Jesus teaching in the temple. The Pharisees and scribes brought a woman whom they said had been caught in the act of adultery. That was her accusation. To commit adultery is severely condemned in the scriptures, according to Proverbs 6 and 22, according to Mark 7, 21, and according to Galatians 5 and 19. And the Old Testament is filled with it, Leviticus 20 and 10. Why didn't the foes of Jesus bring the man? Why didn't they bring the man who had committed adultery with the woman? Leviticus 20 and 10 says that's required. They failed in that count. They were dishonest. They surely knew who he was since they caught him both in the act. Or either they were lying about it. The Old Testament said the adulterer as well as the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, the accusers were not interested in the woman. Their whole purpose was to trap Jesus, trap Christ. And in our motives to learn and teach, we need to keep our motives pure. It seemed to present a real dilemma for him. Now they said stone her. If Jesus had said to stone her, he could have been brought before Roman officials for assessing the death penalty. They had him there. That's open. They could have gotten him. And they oppressed it. It was illegal for Jews to do so, and they knew it. They were skilled in the law of Moses, but they were skilled in the Roman law, too. Also, such a stand would have cost his reputation for being merciful to sinners. Release her. Suppose Jesus called for her release. Let's just suppose that he did. He would have been charged with breaking the law of Moses. So they had him either way. If he says, put her to death, that's according to the Roman law, uh, according to the law of Moses. He says, he's a violator. Go get him, Roman official. We caught him. We caught him red-handed. He might even have been accused of encouraging adultery. He would have. You know that. 
if he advocated violating the law of Moses, he could be condemned by the Jewish court and stripped of his influence among the people. He said, well, he won't keep the law. He proved that. Now, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. He knew what to do. As Jesus sat silently writing, the accusers kept questioning him. They just kept on questioning. Can't you imagine what they were saying? What is your view of this? What is your view? Do you agree with the law or do you agree with the Roman government? Come on, tell us. Tell us what you, how do you feel? What do you think? Speak up. Be truthful. Jesus rose, he looked at the accusers, and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now what that did was put them on the spot of keeping the law properly, because the law said that could happen. So the person who executed the person had to be free of sin. He appealed to the Old Testament. No one was to be stoned unless at least two or three witnesses said he was guilty. Further, the first stones had to be cast by the witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 17, 5 through 7. This requirement protected the accused for witnesses had to be so certain of a person's guilt that they would be willing, they would be willing to become the executioners. They had to be that sure. The Romans' accusers were dumbstruck. Christ had not been trapped. That shows he was the Son of God. Also, as they reflected on their own sins, they knew they were as guilty as the woman because they hadn't properly initiated this as the law had said. Oh, they were legalists, all right. But it didn't matter to them. They could, they could press a thing this way and not have the facts and not have the witnesses. See? They could not bring themselves to witness against the adulteress. Slowly they stole away, leaving the woman alone with Jesus. Now the story shows how the scribes and Pharisees felt about people. The great lesson here. They thought more of their teaching and their understanding of the Bible even though it wasn't true or not, it was false. They thought more of it than they did of humanity and human life. Didn't matter to them about human life. They saw people as things. They saw people as tools. They saw people as people to use to get done what they wanted to do. They dragged the woman before the crowd as if she had no feelings whatsoever. No rights, no privileges, no forgiveness. They might not have ever known her name. Most likely they didn't. But they did that anyway. Now, 
Here's some things that you need to ask yourself. Look at the uh, look at the thinking process here that we lead with you. Are you ever critical of others for their failings? But soft on yourself? Then you can probably come to identify and find out why God left this lesson for us and gave it to us through Apostle John. Describe an instance where this has been true in your life, if you can. I don't think that's very difficult for any one of us if we're honest and if we want it to prove. I think most of the time we're all hard on other people and, and easy on ourselves. Now, if you look down to the, the ones in under there and what we've gone over and what we've read, if Jesus recommended stoning, Roman government officials would be unhappy since the Jews weren't allowed to execute. Which one of those is true or false? You just, you just think now. If Jesus recommended stoning, Roman government officials would be unhappy since the Jews weren't allowed to execute. That'd have to be true, wouldn't it? If he didn't encourage stoning, he would be seen as rejecting the law of Moses. That's true, too. That's what they knew. That's what they were trying to get put off. If he did not call for stoning, it might appear that he approved the government. You know, that's what people want to make you teach today. If you believe Christ can forgive persons, after all that, he, he, he just believes that you commit adultery. Jesus forgave him. It doesn't mean that a person believes that you commit adultery and not be seen. No more than Jesus believed that adultery wasn't sin. But you know, he didn't call for stoning. If he didn't call for stoning, his reputation for showing mercy would be damaged. Well, he didn't. But do you think his, his, his reputation for showing mercy was damaged because, I mean, if he, if he did call for stoning? He didn't call for stoning because he came to forgive the sin of his sins. And some people haven't ever gotten that message. Okay. Some people just want to stone people who are sinners. Instead of preaching the gospel to them and, and telling them about Jesus' mercy that will forgive them, and no one's saying they don't have to repent. That's understood and that's taught. Jesus wrote on the ground because he was confused about what to do. I don't think that's true. He was never confused. He could see it very clearly and very plainly. 
If he wrote on the ground, if he wrote anything, he probably wrote scripture, or he wrote man's responsibility, or he wrote man's sins. He said, each one of you don't have sin. You can do that. You want to. Or love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love her, she's a close one as it is himself. I don't think any one of them would understand themselves if they had been caught in sin. But I don't know what he wrote, and nobody else knows what he wrote. We know what he wrote on the ground. We do not. Nobody knows that. You can theorize, and you can uh, try to say you know, but nobody knows. The accusers kept on questioning Jesus, but now, we know what they did as long as they were going on. They kept on saying whatever they said. Jesus approved the lifestyle of the woman since he did not condemn her. That isn't true. Now, we make him say that, and we make people say that today if we preach forgiveness to the person who has committed adultery. But that's a lie. You just remember that. That's real important. When a preacher preaches forgiveness, it doesn't mean he, pre- he endorses and gives license to people who sin. Neither did Jesus. And now the devil will try to twist it and try to make you believe it if you don't like the one who's teaching it and preaching it. And that's a shame, but it's still happening today. Jesus called upon the woman to leave her life of sin. And you know that's true because he said sin no more. But you know what he did? He forgave her. He forgave her of her sin. Over on the next page, I think we get an a, a insight, and it's John 8 through 30. And he's talking here that he was the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Let's look at that. Verse 20. What prompted Jesus to call himself the light of the world? Could it have been the sun rising at the time over the Mount of Olives, John 8 and 1, when he said it was sun rising? Could we have been thinking about the pillar of fire, or could he have that provided light to the Israelites during the wilderness wandering in Numbers 19, 15, and 16? He might have been thinking of the prophecy concerning his rising with healing in his wings, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, is translated over there. Well, as the Son is the source of all light, Christ is the source of all spiritual light. He's not a light, but he is the light. And he is the light of the world, not the light part of the world. He's just our light. He's ever... Every one of us is living because Christ is allowing us to live. The life that we live, it's because Christ allows us to live. This is a great claim. Without him, you are as helpless as the world without a son. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, John 8 and 12. The word follows, uh, the word follow was used in several ways in those days. A soldier followed the captain. So Christians should follow Captain Jesus. A slave followed his master. 
A slave is always ready to hear and obey his master's call. So Christian is Christ's slave, ready to hear his call. Join a confused person follows a counselor's advice. So a Christian follows the expert guidance and counselor, and he's called that in Isaiah 9. He's the counselor, the great counselor. A good citizen follows the law. So a Christian follows the laws of, of our king, Jesus. Christ's church is a kingdom, not a democracy. A student follows the teacher's instruction. So a Christian sees the Lord's instruction and obeys them. Christ said, I bear record of myself. This is verse 13. The Jews knew that the claim to be the light of the world was the claim to be God's anointing. In Psalms 27 and 1, it says, The Lord is my life, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Isaiah 60 and 19, Micah 7 and 8, they challenged they challenged his claim on the basis that he was a self-witness. Hey, you're saying he did. But he says, my witness is true. That's verse 14 of that eighth chapter. Christ refuted the Jews' charge that his claim to be the world's light is based only on self-testimony. He does not. He, he does so in two ways. First, you evaluate me by human standards. That's the first thing. That's the verse 15. In this instance, Christ is the one who knew where he would, had come from and where he was going. Verse 14. He knows that he knows. He knows he knows. His critics were in no position to judge his coming and going. And second, my father is my witness. See, under the Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses. He said, I witness myself. But he said, I don't witness alone. I witness but my father is always with me. So he had two. Now they couldn't understand that. Now if they'd have believed that he was the master, that he was the Messiah, they would have believed that. Christ acknowledged your law, which required multiple testimony. He called it your law because the Jews claimed to respect it so highly. The law of Moses said that two witnesses are enough to establish a point, even in a matter so serious as execution. And, and giving forth the death penalty. And the scriptures are, are there in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, and 19, verse 15. And he says, I'll tell you, I don't judge any man, verse 15. Jesus does, does judge me, verse 26 it says. Is that a contradiction? No. His statement, I judge no man, follows immediately after his word, you judge after the flesh. But I judge after spirit, my father's a witness with me. I don't judge from a man's viewpoint. I judge as God, and I have my father as a witness, and we both judge. Jesus is saying that he was not judged by external appearances. That is the way the Jews judge. Besides, said he, my judgment is not mine alone. See, that's the way he said it. Any judgment of mine is done in the presence of my father. Now, they couldn't understand that, but if they recognized that he was the Son of God, they couldn't. And we have to recognize that. When we, when we say follow the Word, we're talking about following these truths that we have here. Where is my Father? Look at the, the next point there. The Jews said, 
Where is, is your father? You're talking about you and your father uh, make a testimony that we ought to accept. Verse 19. He said, well, if you had known me and understood who I am and believed who I am, you'd have known my father also. Thanks to believe the scripture. Christ, whether I go, he cannot come, verse 21 said. The Lord realizes that the time is fast approaching for him to go back to the Father in heaven. But his listeners cannot come with him. Why? Because you shall die in your sins. Sin or disobedience is the thing which separates a man from God. And in Isaiah 59 and 2, he says, Your sins and your iniquities have separated you from your God. Only the redeemed or the forgiven people can follow Christ to heaven. They wouldn't come to him if they might be forgiven. The unforgiven sinners face flaming fire and an everlasting hell and destruction, according to 2 Timothy or 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. In verse 21, he said, Ye seek me, but it will be too late. The time comes when no one can no longer find God. The day of opportunity will pass. The hearts that are hardened and is no longer moved by the call of God, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call you upon him while he is, is near. If you don't seek that, then you won't do it. Now, he was near. He was right in their presence. I look over the next one up top of that third column. The Jews said, will they kill him, sir? He said, where I am, he can't come. If he commit suicide, they would certainly put him away. And the Jews believed that the depths of hell were reserved for people who would commit suicide. So if he killed himself, he would go to hell. And uh, they weren't about to follow him there. See? True, Jesus would die, but would not be killed and he would not kill himself. Rather, he would voluntarily submit to crucifixion at the hand of wicked men of the sins of the world. And that's John 10 and 10. That's thrown over two more chapters. He said, I, I give up my life. I give it of myself. I lay it down, and I'll take it back up. Christ, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Verse 24. There is a way to avoid the horror of meeting God as if a Savior had never come. The way of escape is to meet in Jesus. You ask who I am, verse 25. Well, I am the one I have been telling you I am. When you have nailed me to the cross, you will realize that I am the Messiah. I claim to be. Jesus adds two lovely thoughts. My Father is with me. I always do what pleases him. Over on the next page, and we'll close with this, is the Christ said in verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Christ speaks to those who had come to believe in him. Verse 31. They must continue in my word. Believing is only the start. The Jews, oh, we were never slaves. What do you want us to be a slave to you? 
Christ. Whosoever committeth sin is a slave. He's a slave to sin. Sin becomes one to master. And that's dealt with in Romans 6. He is the person who persists in sinning that gets caught by it. The drunkard is a slave to alcohol. The liar is a slave to lying. The covetous person is a slave to riches. A slave of sin can be set free by Christ. He will be free indeed. The question of those children, they uh, were had brought up the father question, Christ speaks of my father, implying that they have a different father. He doesn't he does not identify their father yet, as he will shortly. The Jews said, Well, Abraham is our father, and the people are uncomfortable with Christ. A moment before they had only claimed to be descendants of Abraham in verse thirty three. Now they insist Abraham is their father. Now Christ he said, Well the children of Abraham wouldn't seek to kill me. If you're children of Abraham, they wouldn't seek to kill me. Children act in keeping with their father's character. You claim Abraham is your father? Well, Abraham welcomed God's messengers, Genesis 18, 1 through 18, whereas you're trying to kill God's messengers. No, you aren't really his spiritual descendants of the father of Abraham. You're not acting like that. You do the deeds of your father, but again, Christ does not identify their father. The Jews said, well, God is our Father, verse 41. Well, Christ is crowding them. They sense that the Father with whom he identified them is not good. So they make a strong claim that God himself is their Father. If they don't know that God is our Father there. Then they said, we be not born of fornication. They were taking a shot here at Jesus by implying that he was born as a result of fornication. Now I want you to get this right here. There's a lot of secular history and research on this. There was a rumor that Mary, his mother, and don't you think they didn't gobble that up and try to use it, had been unfaithful to her husband Joseph and he was born out of wedlock. The rumor had it that she had been involved with the Roman soldier. Christ says, You are of your father, the devil. Verse 44. Your claim that God is your father won't stand up. If you were really the sons of the Father in heaven, you would be like him. You would love me. For I'm the son of God. And now for the bombshell. You are of your father the devil. An accusation. Christ had been hinting about their father earlier, but now he says plainly that the devil is their spiritual father. They were under the influence and direction of the devil, the enemy of both God and man. Now why did he say that? Because he was working against Christ, not for it. There was no doubt in the mind of Christ that the devil exists and has a great influence on men and women. He took Christ for a battle as soon as he fasted and as soon as he was baptized. Peter said he goes about still now. 
as a roaring lion, about 65 A.D., seeking whom he may devour. And he told Christians to whom resist that fast in the faith. But we need to understand that we need to believe in the devil as well as in the Christ. And he won't let us go as long as we're in this life. He'll haunt us with ideas, with envy, with hate, with suspicion, anything to destroy the body of Christ. And he'll get into the best of people. And he'll change their attitude from a smile to a hate. <coughs> the devil is a murderer. And he's also a liar. That's what Jesus said. When the people sought to kill Christ, it showed that they were like their father, the devil. When one lies, he or she is certainly under the influence of the devil. Now, don't forget that. Lying is an appalling act and is severely condemned in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 8, and they'll have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The good life is built on truth-telling in both words and actions. It is built on trust. The wife can trust her husband, and the husband can trust his wife. Parents know their children always tell them the truth. Friends do not lie to each other. And now Jesus raises a staggering question. Which of you convinces me of sin? Verse 46. If my claim to be God's son is false, then expose me. Point out my sins, which would prove your claim. If you can't find any sin in me, then accept me. They could not find sin in Christ as men cannot find sin in Christ today, nor in the body. What a claim. Would you challenge someone to find a sin in your life? A man, just a man, wouldn't make such a challenge. But Christ did. For he was without sin. Thank God. He died for my sin and for your sin. The Jews said, you're a Samaritan. You have a devil. They couldn't take that. Christ said, I have no devil. Anyone who obeys me shall never see death. Verse 49-51. Christ ignored their claim that he was a Samaritan, considered by them a terrible, terrible thing. Like calling somebody a dog. No, he said, I have no devil, but rather I honor my father. You see, if you will quit dishonoring me and do what I say, I won't let you ever die. You can live forever and forever. Jesus said those sweet words. This is an amazing place. We all would like to live forever in a place of happiness. But we expect to die. Jesus claims he can give you life evermore. What a leap. We all believe it. We trust him. The Jews said, how can it be 
Abraham the prophet died. Verse 53, Christ said, Well, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He saw the promise. Verses 54 through 56. Of course, Abraham died too. But he did see Christ day by faith. The Jews said, Well, you are 50 years old. Verse 57. Christ said, Well, you don't go by age. Before Abraham was, I, I was. And I've always been. I am means I've always existed. Verse 58. Abraham was born. Before he was born, he had no existence. Christ lived before Abraham because he has always existed. He is always the I am. And in Hebrews 13, in verse 8, he says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's our Savior. There is another great lesson in chapter 9 that we will not cover. We thank you for bearing with us and looking at that 8th chapter, and I do it to get you acquainted with the interaction of what Jesus had to go through dealing with people in the call out. And it's supposed to have been following him, and it's supposed to be the ones who really were the ones to receive the Master. And yet they failed him. So don't be surprised if the devil works on us and tries to get our focus off. That's just ordinary. That's what he's been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Don't, don't, don't be afraid to acknowledge when we get away from Christ and away from the truth. To say, hey, that's, it happens to all of us. Then. We need to get back. We need to focus on him. This is his body. This is his church. This is an invitation for people to come to him. And if we stay in him and, and if we acknowledge the truth and preach the truth and preach him, he's going to be the one that will deliver us out of this, this life into the one that will be for them. If you're subject to call, we ask you to come and you stand together and say,